Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy Stories. We hope you enjoy finding out more about the personal journeys of your colleagues and their journey through the energy industry. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode. This episode of Insider's Guide to Energy Stories is sponsored by Fidectus. For more information, please go to www.fidectus.com. So, Zoe, why don't you start by introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, of course. So, hi, everyone. My name is Zoe Slattery. Um, I live in Cambridge in the UK, and I work for a company called Smart Villages, where I work as a electronic engineering project manager. Um, I was born in Scotland. I've got two sisters, which shaped quite a lot of my life growing up. And yeah, that's that's me. Well, that's that's great to hear. Um, let's start by going deep dive into what is an electronic uh, project manager. What does that mean? Well, um, the company I work for works mainly in East Africa, and I am a project manager for our projects in Uganda. So we. The main aim of smart villages is that we believe that people living in remote villages, which is over about 70% of the global poor, deserve the same opportunities as everyone else. And we believe that energy can be used as a catalyst to help rural development in a lot of these places. So when I say I'm an electronic engineering project manager, it means that on the smart villages side, I manage the projects in Uganda, which are related to energy access. Okay. And uh, when it comes to this uh, whole concept of energy access, what do you do? What, what's the process of, um, you think, okay, we found this village. Um, we want to bring energy to them. How does it go? Where do you start? And what mm-hmm. do you finally do? What's in, in simple words? Uh, yeah. What do you go there to do? So I don't want to give the impression that we that we find a village in East Africa and we say, look, have some electricity, because that's, that's not what we do at all. More what we do is we work very closely with partner organizations. And I'm going to take the example of Uganda because it's it's where I work mostly. So it's what I understand best. We work with partner organizations in Uganda to work within remote communities who are who want rural development. So it's not that we come in and we electrify people's houses and that we just give electricity. It's mm-hmm. an incredibly long process where we come in with our local partner organizations and we talk to communities. Like the main thing, the thing that takes pretty much the most time is just going and talking to pretty much as many people in the community as we can find. So we want to talk to the people in charge of the community, obviously, but we also want to talk to the different age groups and we want to talk to the different genders so that we can get a picture of where this community wants to go. Like, Because energy is not just about having access to electricity. Like, Mm -hmm. It's actually relatively easy to go and put a solar panel somewhere and say, look, this person has electricity now, but it doesn't necessarily do a lot. Having access to energy is, yes, about having the access to electricity, but also about how people are able to use it. 
So it's about, look, we have this electricity now. How can that help with making the community a better place for everyone that lives there? So can it be used for healthcare? Can it be used for education? Can it be used for agriculture if it's an agricultural community? So that's what I mean by energy access. Often you hear about, or I hear about, villages being electrified, and it just means that, well, they put a light bulb uh, and now they have a light inside the house, but it doesn't mean that it brings um, the benefits of energy to that particular mm. community if it's just a light bulb. Um, exactly. I think that's a great point. So is there any examples of things that uh, these are the past projects that we've done for this community? Uh, what it meant for them was uh, healthcare. What for this other one, it meant this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just very curious about how does that conversation start and mm -hmm. where has that led you in the past with those projects you work in Uganda? Yeah, so where that conversation starts is normally with the local partner organizations identifying some villages which would be which would be good to work with. And that means villages with strong governance and which generally are quite cohesive as communities. So would be interested to um, to develop the village and to like work together. Um, so where we work in Uganda, um, we work mainly with agricultural communities. So that's communities where the vast majority of people there are working in farming in some way. Okay, so most of the projects you work on are agricultural, but how do you make sure that you're delivering a service that the community is interested in? So I think the thing that I want to go through in order to understand the smart villages approach really well is something called the service value method. And it's something that was developed by actually my boss in the company. She developed this method throughout her PhD. And it is a method of really finding out what people in communities, like what would make their lives better. So it's not meant to be energy focused. It's not us coming in and saying, we can give you electricity. What would you use it for? It is coming in and saying, what services would improve your lives here in the village that you live in? Because if you come in, it's, it's quite an important and subtle point. If you come in to a village and say, we have electricity, we can give it to you. Um, what would you use it for? Then everyone will immediately start thinking about lighting and about things that electricity could potentially be used for. Because electricity is very strongly associated with things like light bulbs, like household lighting, because that's what it's mainly used for. Whereas if you take a slightly higher level approach and say, what could improve your lives, then it makes people start to think a lot broader. It makes people start to think about healthcare and education and better roads. And whilst electricity can't necessarily help with all of that, it can help with a lot more than people think. So if you have a health centre, it's obviously going to be much a much better level of health centre if it's got electricity, because you can have different kinds of machines, you can have Again, better lighting for the health center, but also in a school, you can have computers, you can have printers, you can have really useful things that people don't necessarily think of if you just say the word electricity. Mm -hmm. So the service value method is essentially going to a community with the local partner organizations 
and talking to different sectors in the community. So we normally split it to talking to women, talking to men. Uh, we talk to the leaders of the community. We talk to the elders and we talk to the youth. And the reason we do that separately is because it's quite common. If you've got a group, if you're talking to an entire group of people, there's going to be some very loud voices. There's going to be some people who say, I want like, I want this machine and I want it in my house and I want to build my own shop. And like, no one else will speak because they're a really important person in the community, right? So you want to be able to hear the different voices and hear what different sectors want because it's quite often the case that women will want different things to men and that youth will want different things to elders. So it's really important to talk to these groups individually and find out what they want. And with this method, you get people to suggest different things, like people will say, we need water, people will say, we need household lighting, people will say, we need um, better school books, people will say, we need better roads, things like that. And then you get them to quantify how important each of these things are to them. And the way we do that is by giving them 20 little counters and drawing out all of these things that they want on a big board. And then they can place the counters to signify their preference. So if someone says the only important thing to me is education, then they can put 20 counters on that. But if people say, actually, it's pretty important that we improve the road to our village, and it's pretty important that we get more agricultural machinery, and a couple of other things, then they can split up the counters as they want. And that way you get a such a clearer image of actual quantitative information to how important these things are to every single person who turns up to this session. And then you can see, actually, women are prioritizing this service here, whereas the elders really want this service. And you can just get a much clearer image Rather than going into a community and saying, look, here's electricity, have some light bulbs, it's coming in and finding out really deep down what it is that people want and what would improve their lives. And that that's kind of the whole Smart Villages approach of we are trying to be completely community-led mm. and we want to work with local partners and work really within the community to find out like the specific needs because every village has different needs. Every person wants different things. We want to develop within the community a specific solution to a specific need. And that way, you're going to develop a solution which is self-sustaining because it's something that everyone wanted in the first place. And if everyone wants it in the first place, then it's not going to be the case with, like with many other development projects where a development company will come in and say, look, we have this cool technology, like, mm -hmm. have it, we'll put it on the ground here, you guys will love it, it'll be amazing. And then they leave and six months later, it's, it's broken and it's dusty because no one ever wanted it in the first place. So that is from about seven years or more of grassroots research within the Smart Villages team. That's the solution that we are working with. I think you're doing something amazing, especially by trying to make this community led. As you mm. said, um, it's, it's very hard for people to just adopt something that somebody else told them they wanted. Uh, I've had some previous experiences working in communities and I remember quite clearly that we just came there and told them, hey, here are some sewing machines, uh, start making jeans. And it didn't work because they didn't want to do that. 
So, so the fact that you're going through all this process to try to understand uh, and pull out of their minds what does the community need and what does the community want so that they can mm-hmm. benefit from it and get something that is useful to them and their environment, I think it's it's something uh, quite impressive. Um, mm-hmm. But I assume that being so very thorough which, with each of these different communities, it also means mm-hmm. that you take more time. Let's quantify that. How many months from like the start mm-hmm. of the conversation with your partners locally to mm-hmm. when you would say, oh, well, the project is now maybe not finished, but operational or online? So I'm going to start off by saying that if I'm honest, I can't give you a definitive answer for how long our process takes, but I can break down the process a little bit for you to talk about what it involves. So the first thing it involves is finding the communities who we'll be able to work well with and communities who really want to work with us. And the speed of finding communities depends a lot on how well linked our partners are within those communities. And so if they're really well linked, that can just be a matter of days. But if there's a little bit more work to be done, then that can take maybe even a couple of months. And then after that, there will be some site evaluation steps that we go through. And that involves quite a lot of visits. So that can take some time as well. Following that, we use the service value method, which I've touched on before. And the beauty of that is that it actually doesn't take a very long time. Mm -hmm. It can take about a few hours just to run one of these sessions. And you get an incredibly dense data set from it with the stories behind that data. So one of the things that we're particularly proud of is that the approach The approaches take time, but what we're good at is coming up with processes which combine both engineering design and social science to get the information that we need and get through this process, but in a really efficient way. And there's also certain things that will will get in the way, whether you're using a community-centered approach or not, right? There's, There's delays in land ownership, there's delays in regulations, depending on the country you're working in. So there's there's a lot of delays that can come, whatever kind of approach that you're going to use. So you're right, it it does take longer to use a community-centric approach like the one that we do, but I would I would caveat that I would caveat that by saying that we really do see the benefits later on because by using this community-centric approach, we've developed something in partnership with the community and it's using a process that we know absolutely works. It seems like these projects are fairly complex and they involve a myriad of different stakeholders from yourselves to your partners in the country and the government itself, um, delays can come from anywhere. So it's fair if you cannot give me an average time frame for the average project that you work on. The other, the other side of this is if we are working with communities, obviously they want to have discussions among themselves without us there and work out within themselves whether this is something that they want. And that can take an incredible amount of time as well because you will occasionally have people in communities that say, actually, no, we don't want this. We don't want anything to do with them. And that can be really hard because it can be that 99% of the community wants to work with us, but maybe 1% is a loud, vocal dissenter, as it Mm. were. So I really can't quantify how much time it takes. That, that's a fair one. Um, and is it a challenge on the same topic? Is it a challenge that it takes longer time 
to make sure that, as you said, the projects are self-sustainable as opposed to um, other development approaches where it's like, here's the thing and you can go and give more things to more villages and then say, well, we helped so many people. Because uh, with this, my impression, and I might be wrong, you can tell me is with this type of development projects, scalability and uh, numbers of beneficiaries are very important metrics. So how do you say, well, maybe we're not everywhere, but where we are, we're making a difference. Mm. So that's, I mean, it's a really important point what you've just said there. Like development is so metric driven. Like mm. if you have funders, then you want to be able to say, we installed X kilowatts of solar panels. We worked with Y number of villages. We put in this many light bulbs, this many water pumps, things like that. People want to see numbers. But what's behind those numbers is really, in in my opinion, what is the important thing? So mm -hmm. yes, like, I mean, we've talked about this already. You can install like as many solar panels as you want. But if you've installed like a megawatt of solar panels to power one light bulb, that's utterly ridiculous. Um, you could do so much more with that power and you could so, you could help so many more people to develop their own businesses and to improve the lives that they are living on the technical side of energy access because i i know you said you you offer the service and what they want but uh, in terms of technology what is it typically solar panels so for smart villages the main expertise that we have is with solar energy that's not to say it's the the best one like there are situations where it's better to use wind power better to use hydro there are many different situations but what we know best is solar power so that is generally what we use yes okay uh, um, are any specific different challenges or situations where you would say okay hydro works better here or or is it just based on resources oh there's it's really windy in this yeah. village so maybe yeah. some wind turbines yeah um so obviously if you're if you're in a place where there's not a lot of sun obviously solar power is not it's not the best i'm from the uk solar power is It's used quite often, but it doesn't produce anywhere near the same amount of power as it does in Uganda for very obvious reasons. So there's situations, for instance, in in mountains, like in very mountainous areas, you like, it's difficult to put solar panels in a valley because there'll be shading quite often. If you're in very cloudy areas, then it's probably not the best idea as well. So it's quite dependent on the geographical conditions of where you're working. And if you are putting solar panels in a very cloudy area, then you need to factor in that you probably want a lot more battery storage because you're just not getting the same amount of sun in the area as you would if it were in the middle of a desert with no clouds, for instance. So you need to factor in the extra cost of a lot of battery storage as well. And if that cost exceeds what you would get from, for instance, a constantly flowing river and hydropower, then yeah, that's the time when you should think maybe I should be using hydropower instead. So it's pretty much just geographical conditions and also availability of the technology. Fair. As, as you adjust, you know, the the service that you offer and the, the approach to each community, you're also, you know, looking at the technical side and and adjusting, you know, energy source or energy technology to the particular community. On on a different note, is it is it ever challenging that you're seen as a well, a complete outsider, first to the community? Uh, then also to the country. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really great question. I think I am very obviously an outsider in many of the communities that we work in. Um, I I don't speak the language. I I am white. I have blonde hair. I look very different. Um, I speak very differently. So I am very very clearly at first glance an outsider. <laughs> pretty much um, pretty much everywhere that I go. So the biggest thing and the most important thing here, which I really want to stress, is the partner organizations that we work with. We work with such incredible partner organizations in Uganda. They are amazing. They work really closely within the communities. And it is such a different feeling to walk into a community on your own where you could be quite rightly treated with a little bit of suspicion and surprise and confusion as to why you're there because it's it's not very common for outsiders to go to these places versus walking in next to the partner organized <clears throat> the partner organization who they have met multiple times before who they might even have known since they were younger who have worked with within this community and who obviously speak the same language it's such a palpable difference walking in with people that the community already knows and trusts so that is that's that's a really great feeling, and it's why I can't stress enough how important it is to have good community-led, sorry, community-based organizations. How do you feel about the energy access in the countries that you work with, specifically Uganda? Are you optimistic? Is it going in the right direction? Uh, do you think it could go faster? Uh, what's What's your outlook on that? I mean, it can always it can always go faster, right? But Fair. I mean, the national grid in Uganda it it is expanding, it is growing. They are reaching further places. There's there's still a few problems. Like there are there are definitely blackouts. There are definitely brownouts. There's it is not the absolute highest quality that it can be. But I do have quite a lot of hope for off grid projects such as ours. I think there are definitely things that could be done to make it slightly easier for off-grid projects to set up in terms of the regulations within Uganda for mini-grids. But yeah, I mean, I am optimistic that these things can change and that a lot more people can have access to energy in the near future. And on a personal um, note, where do you see yourself? Is this um, what you always wanted? Uh, do you see yourself continuing in uh, energy access for a while? Um, what's what's the future looking like for Zoe? Um, I'll be honest. I can't. I can't, in all honesty, say that it's what I always wanted. I kind of stumbled into it. I'm very happy I stumbled into it, but it was it was not something that I had looked at when I was ten and thought I want to be an electronic engineer working in Uganda. That's that's not what happened. But again, very happy I ended up here. Um, I think personally, I I absolutely love what I'm doing at the moment. I think it's it's challenging in so many ways that I never never even imagined, and it's interesting work, and it's it's hard technically as well, which is something that was that was really important to me. So I can see myself working in this field for a very long time. I think I would be really interested personally to work in larger companies that do this as as well at some point in the future because there are a lot of different larger development organizations like GIZ like the World Bank who 
will face very different challenges to the small smaller company that I work in now. Like they they have a lot more funding behind them, but it's a lot harder for them to be agile and community led quite often. So I think, yeah, staying in this same field, but seeing the challenges of different sizes of companies is what I'm aiming for.